Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 3. On this week's episode, I talk with President of the American Mathematical Society and Professor at Penn State University, George Andrews. We discuss partition functions, whether or not he happens to wear a pith helmet, and why computers are really just pencils with power steering. Here we go! Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest today is Professor George Andrews, the Evan Pugh Professor at Pennsylvania State University and also the President of the American Mathematical Society. Hello, Professor Andrews. Hi, how are you, Samuel? I am doing quite well. How are you on this fine day? Very well. So, I wanted to start today with a question about your childhood. Uh, You mentioned in an interview, or it may have been in the biography I read, that you had, as a child, a dream of becoming a detective. So, the first books that I took seriously in junior high school were the Sherlock Holmes stories by Arthur Conan Doyle. And it seemed very appealing to lead a life in which you used your mind to solve problems. And uh, so I was hoping to follow in some sort of of occupation like that. Uh, By the time I got to high school, I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was what I told people I was going to do when, as, as my career choice. And then when you went to, uh, when you left for university, what did you uh, start studying there? Well, in my senior year in high school, uh, in terms of getting advice, I asked a counselor for his suggestions, and his advice was that it was very unlikely that anybody ever got a job that they really enjoyed, but since I was good at science and mathematics, but interested in law, why didn't I think about becoming a patent attorney so that I would combine science and the law? And so my idea in starting at the university was to become uh, a, to take a degree in engineering and then a degree in law. However, as I went through my first two years, I found that the mathematical aspects of engineering appealed to me much more, and I was greatly inspired by my um, calculus teacher, and by the time I was a junior in college, I had switched to being a math major and never looked back. Uh, If if I can track back a little bit, uh, you said the counselor says very unlikely that anyone will find a job that they actually enjoy. Have you found that to be true? Uh, Certainly, I have loved every moment being a mathematician, so my personal experience is completely the opposite from that, and I suspect strongly that perhaps he didn't enjoy his job all that much and was overgeneralizing. Well, that's very good to hear. I, I didn't want to hear that people don't enjoy their jobs. 
And then your basic work, the work that a lot of people know you for in mathematics is work on partition functions. Now, if you could give a little bit of uh, idea of what they are and how you came upon them. So the, the simplest idea of, of the partition function is to look at writing integers as sums of integers. So, for example, 3 plus 2 plus 1 is a partition of 6. And one of the simplest questions you might ask is, how many ways can I actually partition a number? How many ways can I write it as sums? So, for example, take the number 4. There are five sums that add up to 4. 4 as a one-term sum, then 3 plus 1, 2 plus 2, 2 plus 1 plus 1, and 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1. So there are five ways of writing 4 as sums of integers. And the natu one natural question is, could you find a formula that when for any given integer n, if you plug that number into the formula, the answer that would come out would be the number of partitions. Well, this seems like an implausible idea, but when I was a freshman in college, my then girlfriend, who turned out to be my wife for the last 50 years, gave me a set of books called The World of Mathematics. And in one article there, there was a footnote in which this problem was mentioned and part of the formula was listed. And it was so bizarre and so strange that the possibility of studying this stuck with me. When I started graduate school, the, the there was a course being offered that would explain this, and that captivated me, and my entire career has been built around either questions directly of that nature or applications or other mathematical uh, subjects that are in some way related to it. Now, with something like looking for partitions, I see that as, a, as something where you very much look, you tend to have to think about it very closely. Do you feel that some of your childhood love of detective work also ties together with your choice of mathematical discipline? Oh, I think so. I mean, basically, being a mathematician really does fulfill the detective work, the solving of puzzles, the seeing of grand uh, structures, much as Sherlock Holmes saw the uh, the structure, say, of, of the crime web, crime web headed by Professor Moriarty. So there is a natural way in which the things that interested me as a child have kept stayed with me all of my life. Now, I'm imagining that this probably means that you fall more on the discovery instead of invention side of the mathematical philosophy debate. Uh, so, there is no doubt in my mind that mathematics is pure discovery. There is no such thing as invention. Uh, we do not invent mathematics. It is there to be discovered. When you started working on your thesis, you started working with something called mock theta functions. Now, I've so tried to look these up a bit, and I'm still uh, a little iffy on what they are. So if you could explain to me what a mock theta function actually is. Okay, so these were functions discovered by the Indian mathematician Srinivasa Ramanujan. A technical description of them 
would be that they are analytic functions defined inside the unit circle whose behavior near the unit circle is analogous to the behavior of the classical theta functions. And in other words, a definition that almost no one listening to this will understand. I should in terms of tying them into the idea of partitions described earlier, tell you that these functions are basically what are called the enumerating functions of certain classes of partitions, so that in in a real sense they are closely related to these sorts of things that I described earlier, but they're, they also have an esoteric aspect that is hard to put into common language. Well, you ended up working on those, and in, in that thesis work later on apparently came a bit in handy with what, at least when you search for information about you, tends to come up most often, and that, that is finding Ramanujan's lost notebook. Now, uh, yes. I, I have a very romantic idea of how you found this, which involves you in a pith helmet down in some uh, basement holding up a gas lantern, poking through books and escaping traps. Now, I imagine that's probably not how it happened. Uh, It's a little exaggerated. (laughs) But if if you could explain uh, how it happened. Okay, so basically here, the, the, the setting for this is as follows. In the spring of 1976, I was... I was a visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin, and at that time I was invited to present a paper at a conference in Strasbourg in France, and at a conference that would last a week. Uh, however, at that time, the irrational pricing policy of the airlines was as follows. If you stayed in Europe for at least three weeks, you have paid a very small fare. If you stayed less than three weeks, the airfare was extremely large. And so you could basically almost pay for the extra two weeks if you uh, stayed. And so what I needed to do was to find academically appropriate things that I could be involved with in that extra two weeks. I knew that papers from the estate of an English mathematician, G.N. Watson, had been filed in the Trinity College Library in Cambridge. So one of the things I proposed to do, not a very exciting idea, but nonetheless certainly academically appropriate, was to examine these papers to see what uh, mathematics might be there. Uh, when I entered the Trinity College Library and asked to see these papers, two or three boxes of them were brought out, and in them was a more than 100-page manuscript in the handwriting of Srinivasa Ramanujan. It was obviously his personal notes. It had almost no words in it. Occasionally, it would say something like, if this is true, then that, but Nothing more than that. Many formulas, some pages completely chaotic, many formulas, one listed after another, no proofs of any of them. In looking through this, since I had written my PhD thesis on mock theta functions, I observed that the mock theta functions were there. Now, the mock theta functions, 
arose in Ramanujan's work only three months before he died after he had returned to India and throughout most of the 20th century. We knew nothing of what he had done after he returned to India because he was very ill. And so the natural assumption was he was probably not doing much mathematics, although there was a letter to G.H. Hardy telling about the mock theta functions, and that was the source from which my Ph.D. thesis was written. But here in this manuscript were all of these mock theta functions, which meant that I held in my hands the manuscript that he had been working on in this last year of his life when he was at the height of his intellectual powers, although his physical being was uh, was fading because he died shortly after he wrote his letter to Hardy. So that was the discovery that led to all the things surrounding what's called the lost notebook of Ramanujan. Now, finding that lost notebook has allowed you to, over at least over the last couple of decades, get proofs for a lot of the things in there and, and publish it yes. as a book. Correct? Yes, basically. There is, so Bruce Berndt at the University of Illinois and I are bringing out an, an edited version of the Lost Notebook, and there will be proofs of all the formulas. It's going to be a four-volume work. Two volumes are out. We're working on the third volume right now. Now, Richard Askey, I believe it was a colleague of yours at Madison when you were visiting, Professor. Correct. He stated that uh, he does not believe anyone else could have spotted them instantly in the way you did because of your work with the mock theta function. Do you think that that's true? I think that's uh, so, so there are many more people in the world now who were aware of mock theta functions, but I don't think there really was anybody at the time that I saw that who was as aware of them as I am. In particular, you see the manuscript. There's nothing in the manuscript where the words mock theta function appear. They are just these expressions, and so if you recognize them, you'll know what's going on. But if you are, if you don't know what is happening, if you are, there is nothing to to clue you in unless you are very familiar with these functions. And I don't think at that time anybody else was nearly as familiar with them as I was. Did I read correctly that this discovery also got you a part playing G.H. Hardy on television? So the, the Channel 4 in Britain produced a an hour-long story of Ramanujan's life, and the idea was that it would be first put on in Britain and then they would sell it to Nova, where it eventually did appear in this country. But they were aware that in order to sell it to Nova, they needed an American connection. And the story was about a young Indian who traveled to Cambridge, England, did mathematics with a British professor, went back to India and died. And so there's very little in the American connection. And so the story of the lost notebook and my finding it and the discussion of it by me added the American connection. And so that's definitely how I got on the NOVA program. Richard Asky also stated that uh, during that year you were in Madison, between 75 and 76, that it could have been one of the most fruitful of your career. You wrote and submitted the theory of partitions during that time, proved the McMahon conjecture, the connection coefficient problem for little uh, Q-Jacobi polynomials. 
I was wondering if you have found that uh, in general you tend to create a lot in a short period of time or if uh, because I mean, you've, you've been quite prolific in, in mathematics and if you find that you do a lot of work in a short period of time very well or if you tend to spread out a little bit better. That's a very hard question. Certainly there have been times when things have, the stars have been in alignment, I guess you'd say, and many things come together and happen, and other times there are less productive periods. That's been true. Certainly the year in Madison was an extremely productive year. There have been other years like that, and but for the most part, I would say that there's been a fairly even production, but Definitely, there have been high, higher points than some and some of years in which I have done less. There's an interesting story from around the same time period when you were talking at a uh, conference. I cannot exactly remember uh, where it was, but ASCII, this is still from the ASCII article, he stated that his mathematical his confidence in your mathematical taste started to disintegrate immediately. <laughs> and apparently you put up a few slides that were either wrong or confusing. And, but then it turned out that it was an April Fool's joke because it was on April 1st, 1975. Now, I've wondered, I've, I wonder if you find that this sort of playfulness has helped you a lot in mathematics, if the use of humor <laughs> as an outlet comes in handy. Okay. For being a human being. So I have tried to enjoy life and enjoy the things I do. And sometimes this, the, the possibilities for humor present themselves and I find myself unable to resist. Much of the mathematics I do uh, ha- involves very complicated expressions and is difficult to present in a conference talk because of its complication. That fact and the fact that I was actually speaking on April Fool's Day uh, just was too delicious to pass up, and all I needed to do was to find some absolutely formula that was even much more horrendous than anything that I would put on the screen and complicate it just a little bit so that by the time I had prepared the first two slides, they were just awful. (laughs) And the third slide, which I put up as totally black and then pulled off the shield to reveal April Fool in large letters, produced a fair amount of laughter and was just part of the enjoyment of life. Moving forward in time a bit, uh, during the 80s, you started use of uh, computer algebra packages, I believe. Uh, So actually, I've used those a very long time, but they really got most sophisticated in the 80s. But I've certainly been using computer algebra packages back as far as the early 70s, even late 60s. What extra has the use of computers, uh, specifically computer algebra packages, obviously, but uh, what have computers allowed you to do that you were unable to before? So the computer has the tremendous advantage of allowing you to explore much more widely and effectively because it can do computations so rapidly that you can 
check out something to see if your idea is is correct. You can search for things by looking at a large number of examples. It is, I have uh, uh, referred to the computer as a pencil with power steering. You do very much the same things I would do with paper and pencil, but it is so much more rapid and uh, so much more far-reaching that you can examine many more things and look at many more things because of the power of this machine. Do you feel, though, at times that there's a certain over-reliance on this technology? Well, the issue is that it is, in my opinion, very important not to introduce technology too early in mathematics education. You want people to be in control of and have an understanding of mathematics before you introduce uh, computers or calculators or the like because the tendency to laziness is something that every human being uh, possesses. And each of these things if I'm in control, I can explore, but if I'm just lazy, I will use it to add 5 and 7 or multiply 8 times 6. And by if you introduce it too early in education, no one gets a feeling for mathematics because they're just punching buttons, and the results will be most in evidence when they finally arrive in college and really know nothing. Moving ahead a little bit, I, I've not ever spoken with someone who's actually helped uh, create a physical model. And so you did some work with the physicists Rodney Baxter and Peter Forster yes. in the creation of that uh, ABF model. I imagine the A yes. stands for Andrew. Yes, that and does. I was wondering what actually goes into uh, moving from mathematics into the actual physical world. So basically... So both Baxter and Forrester are physicists. Uh, Baxter is a, is a famous physicist who works in statistical mechanics. So in effect, what they try to do is to define a physical model in terms of some sort of mathematical setting. What happened with regard to the work on the hard hexagon model and its extension to the ABF model is that Baxter set up a mathematical model which initially describes how liquid helium behaves when it is distributed on a graphite plate. Once you have this model set up, then there is a technique that developed by the physicists called the method of the corner transfer matrices, where you describe the physical properties of this mathematical system and hopefully of the physical situation it represents by a certain set of what are eigenvalue sums. And this is what uh, Baxter did. And he found that in order to understand these things, it turned out that he needed what are called generating functions related to things in the theory of partitions. He found out that I had worked on such things and wrote me a letter describing information that he sort of hoped might be true that would help him 
solve a variety of things in this model. Uh, questions he asked me were actually, I knew the answer to every one of them because basically these were part of the, the literature in the theory of partitions. And from there, we went on to more general problems. And uh, basically, my contribution was always the mathematical contribution related to the what had arisen from the model that he and in Forrester constructed describing the physical situation. Recently, you became uh, president of the AMS, the American Mathematical Society. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the AMS is and what its role is in the mathematical community. So the AMS is the oldest mathematical society in America. It dates back to the late 19th century. Its object is to foster all aspects of mathematics and to provide services, information, journals, books, etc. for search mathematicians and people who need the information uh, related to mathematics. Currently, there are a variety of issues of importance. There is concern about support for mathematical research and how that is going to play out, especially in this time of economic difficulties. There is now a, an effort to set up national standards of mathematics for K-12 education, and this is of great concern to us because, uh, obviously, the students uh, arriving at university have just finished their K-12 education, and so it is important to us that they be ready for college mathematics. All of these questions and the the issue of promoting the profession, helping young people, all the ways in which we can serve the mathematics community are things of concern to the American Mathematical Society. Oh. Uh, you spoke of funding for mathematicians in general. Now, you've gone to say that we need to work for better funding for younger mathematicians. This is something I yes. have, I've definitely felt myself. Now, why do you specifically feel that we need better funding for the young mathematicians, and also uh, how do you feel that that can be addressed? Well, basically, what is people are most vulnerable in the first part of their career. If you are a mathematician at a university, you do not have tenure until the first six years. The first six years are the time of the development of your career and gaining support so that you will have access to computing, possibilities of having visitors to work with, possibilities of going to conferences. All of these things take money, and that is a stage in someone's career when it is most important that these possibilities be, be available. Generally, established mathematicians certainly should be supported, and uh, I encourage the support of them, but it is less crucial than it is right, when the career is, being, is taking shape and being formed. So how, do, how can one improve this? Well, I have been trying a number of possibilities. I, I feel that this is something that is is appreciated nationally by various funding agencies such as the National Science Foundation or the National Security Agency. I don't 
think that the funding is being done as well as it might be, but obviously uh, I have a biased point of view. So uh, it is something that I am trying to draw attention to. I do feel, for example, that the Canadian National Research Council uh, or Scientific and Educational Research Council, that they really do a better job of funding it than than we do in this country, but uh, this is an obviously a much bigger country population-wise than Canada, and consequently, it is understandable that uh, there would be other points of view as to how the funding should be done. You also spoke of uh, new standards for K-12. Now, you have been uh, critical of curriculum reform in the past, and I was yes. just wondering if you could speak as to uh, why you feel the curriculum reform is, is not the answer to the problems that we do obviously have in mathematical education. So fundamentally, it seems to me that curriculum is always a secondary issue, not that secondary issues aren't important and curriculum is important. But one of the most substantial problems that I think we face is the actual education of especially elementary school teachers with regard to mathematics. If you are an elementary school teacher and you fear mathematics and do not know much of it, it is very likely that you will not teach it well and you will pass that fear along to your students. So the thing I'm concentrating most of my energy on is to try to find ways of enhancing the knowledge of teachers uh, working with various professional development programs because I think that is where the primary problem is. The difficulty I have with a variety of curriculum reform issues is that they have ignored the primary problem and said, well, what we need to do is to have a new curriculum because the current one isn't working. Well, the current one isn't working, not because it's a bad curriculum, but because you have serious difficulties with teachers and their their difficulties with mathematics. And most of the curriculum reforms that I have seen do not really address this problem and often water down the mathematics that, uh, that students should learn before they uh, reach the university. So I have, I'm critical of these programs even though I recognize that, that they have been produced by people with the best intentions and with the same objects that I have, namely to improve the education of students so that they are able to use mathematics effectively both in work and, if they choose, in the university. Oh, thank you very much for your time today, Professor Andrews. Uh, you're welcome, Samuel. Thank you. Well, that is it for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you wish to know more about the guest on this episode, please visit the blog at sccmathpodcast.blogspot.com and you can email me at sccmathpodcast at gmail.com with any recommendations or feedback. The music on this podcast is the song Pie by the band Hard and Firm from their album Horses and Grasses. You can find them at hardandfirm.com. Finally, this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike License. Thanks for listening. Three, eight, four, four, six, zero, nine, five, five, zero, five, eight, two, two, three, one, seven,